Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. It's man-to-man coverage. This is the PFT PM podcast. And now, your host, Mike Florio. Wednesday, July 17 edition PFTPM podcast, and we're going to get right into it. I got nothing to really talk about today in monologue format. So Peter Schaefer, longtime NFL agent, kind enough to join me, although I don't know how kind he really is. He, he, he only would be doing this with some sort of agenda in mind. Is that, is that an accurate assessment of your overall approach to life, Peter Schaefer? Correct, and my agenda on this one is to personally ruin the ratings of your uh, podcast. That's well, that's it. impossible because there are no ratings. They, they cannot get any lower. You can really? do no harm here. Because that's usually one of my strengths when I go on the radio is to kill ratings. Well, I, and, and you know, I hate to say it because I'm reluctant to, uh, what would the word be, compliment you? Um, you, you actually are capable, when you choose to do so, of saying interesting things. So I'm hoping that you have saved a few interesting things that you may say here. Now, let's lay the foundation before we get into this. You have been an agent have, representing NFL players for how long? This will be my 33rd year. That means you are old. No, I started when I was seven. You don't have to do the face app. You just have to look in the mirror. Correct. Have you done the yeah. face app? No. Don't do it. It's horrifying. It is absolutely horrifying. I didn't do it. Matt Casey, who produces PFT Live, did it and sent it to me with my face in my studio. I look like my grandmother. Well, I don't know what your grandma looks like, but if she's as attractive as I believe, then that's a good thing, right? Well, I'm I'm just saying I look like an, an elderly, a very elderly person, and it looks like the way my grandmother looked. That's, you know... It's it just I look like my grandmother. It and she's been gone for 34 years, but it's it's uh it's a horrifying experience. So you can do that when we're done. S- send me a picture of yourself, and I'll have it done for you. So the Russians will have the contours of your face, and they can continue their path to take over the the world. Apparently, it's a Russian app where they're like, you know, uh, invading phones with this thing, and otherwise, uh, you know, up to no good. Apparently, are you aware of that angle to all of this? The whole Russians taking over. I thought they only do elections every like four years. Though. No, the face app thing is part of Russian domination, apparently. Interesting. I, You're I not even that... aware of face app, are you? Have you? Do you pay attention no. to anything? Yeah. Do you even know what I'm talking I, I, about? I have no idea about face app, but if you ask me numbers, if you ask me the number of carries of uh, uh, Emmett Smith, I can tell you that. If you ask me yards per carry, I got that. If you ask me anything outside of that realm, I, I really don't understand. I all right, all right. No, that's, yeah. And, and, I, and I have a feeling if I started asking you specific questions about the number of carries that specific players have had, you would not know the answer to that question. I'm not going to embarrass you by doing that, though. How many career okay. carries did Emmett Smith have? Okay. Are we counting playoffs or not playoffs? Not playoffs. Most of the great running backs had over 3,000 carries in their career. That's usually their half-life. Emmett had over 4,400 carries. Now, now, wait a minute. Did you Google that while, like, did you buy time so you could could punch that up quickly? Is that what you did? No, I prepared for the interview. 
Oh, okay. Oh, so it's good to know that you prepared for the interview by coming to the table with the number of career carries for Emmett Smith. That's good. That's good. That that's very detailed and specific preparation. I like that. No, uh, I segue that. I segue that into the issue of the the economics of the running back in, in the 2019 NFL season. And the reality is, the running backs are being devalued because of you know there's this stigma that running backs do not have the shelf life that the great running backs used to have. And that's why people are worried, you know, because Todd Gurley got hurt one year. But when you look at running backs, and it's Emmitt Smith and the Walter Payton and Barry Sanders and even, you know, Frank Gore, those guys, most of those players had a shelf life of about, I would say, 3,600 carries when you count their carries in the pros and their carries in college. And if the current sort of crop of running backs, Gurley, Mixon, Barkley, uh, Gordon, can prove that they can do 3,000 carries, then I think that that's going to help reestablish the market. But I don't think, first of all, running backs currently are being devalued. I think this is something that has been going on for well over a decade. And I don't know whether it was specifically in response to a guy like Sean Alexander, who finally got his big contract from the Seahawks, and then within a year they couldn't wait to tear it up because his best years were already behind him, and he got his payday too late. I don't know if that was the reason, but I remember when the Saints drafted Reggie Bush in 2006 and promptly made him a a piece of a revolving pie where he didn't nearly get the reps that we would have thought he was going to get because teams started using two or three running backs. That's what began to devalue the running back. Teams decided to get away from the workhorse because the workhorse was getting that big payday at some point into his career and then not living up to it because the problem is the truly great running backs, not all of not 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 all of the truly great running backs, but the phenomenon I've noticed is you get the best out of them early in their career. By the time you pay them, you've already gotten the best of them. So you're paying them for past performance, not future performance, and you end up regretting it. Well, you know, if you really want to peel this engine back, and therefore it starts with the NFL's three-year moratorium against players coming out of college. Because when you take an Adrian Peterson, when, when he was a freshman, he was a man. You know, Barry Sanders... At his one year, he rushed for you know thirty-seven or thirty-seven touchdowns, twenty-nine hundred yards. He you know he can come out, and so when all these schools sit there and say we well, just come back for your senior year, then you start using the Florio theory. There's no reason to. You you have to come out as soon as you can, because the league is going to devalue you as soon as possible. And the other thing that I think hurts what you're talking about is the rookie weight scale. When you take a running back you make him you know like you take Melvin Gordon can't get the market for five years if we can get rid of it and renegotiate after two and do a three-year contract for rooks coming out of the gate because of what you're saying then I think the, you know we can hit the market when a player is 23 24 years old as opposed to 27 28 years old and I, I think you're right on both counts let's start with the first one though because I firmly believe that the rule that requires players to stay in college for at least three years or more accurately prevents them from entering the draft until they're three years removed from high school in order to ensure that they spend their time in college, in order to protect and preserve and promote the free farm system of college football. That That is, I think, criminal. 
I think it's unfair. I think that it does artificially force potentially great players to not get paid for some of the best years of their lives from a health standpoint. And, you know, the idea that you're trying to protect a guy from going against grown men and it, it, look, that the market will sort all that out. And nobody's going to draft a kid that they think is completely incapable of protecting himself on a football field. They're going to draft the ones that they know from all their study are going to come in and get it done. And you can study film and you can measure and you can poke and you can prod and you get a sense of whether or not they're going to be able to compete against 30-year-old NFL players. So I think that's all baloney. It's all aimed at preserving college football, but specifically as it relates to running backs, it forces them to provide some of their best years of service at a time when they're not eligible to get paid by anyone. Correct. They're working, yeah, they're getting it, they're giving up their value for free. I always remember this, Mike, and, and, and I don't like to drop names, but you know, yeah, sometimes you have to. When Barry Sanders held out in 1989, missed the entire. Of course, he only had one rookie minicamp in May, and then you wouldn't see the players again until training camp. Missed the entire training camp, and I think we finished the deal maybe on a Thursday before their first game against Arizona. I remember they took us into the film room. The running back coach taught him two plays, maybe like 18 and 19. You know, it's a stretch play and a dive play, but. You can run him to the left and right, run him to the right. So it was four plays and t- taught him one protection. He went out that Sunday and, you know, rushed maybe 12 carries for 100 yards. Did not miss a beat. And he was ready to go at, at, right off the bat and hit the ground running. You know, Saquon Barkley hit the run, ground running as an elite running back. There was no, none of this. You draft a player like in baseball and he has to sit in the minor leagues for three or four years or a quarterback takes a few years to, to groom. A running back can come right in off, you know, when you, I call them baggage claim guys. You pick them up baggage claim, they're your elite running back. Why is that, though? I think that part of it is the natural instinct of you don't have to teach a guy a lot to avoid, try to avoid real big, mean, nasty people trying to end your life. I think there's a, some of that's natural. And then the other thing is that, you know, by the, the position, these guys are coming out of college very well prepared to handle the rigors. And that's why, you know, you want to segue into the second point that I made. The rookie wage scale, you know, is is a huge detriment to, to the running backs. They're coming in, they're playing. I don't understand why, you know, you take a Joe Mixon, came in a second-round pick, four-year deal for $5 million, you know, basically a million and a quarter a year, and yet he's doing the same job as as Gurley's doing and as Adrian Peterson did in Minnesota when he was making $14 million. So why should a player come in and do the exact same job as a veteran, and yet they're working for, in Joe's case, 10, 10% of the, what the veterans are getting? And yet they're doing the exact same job. Well, and the easy answer to that is get drafted higher, right? What round did he go in? He went top of the second, which actually is turning is going to turn in to a benefit for him because they're not going to be able you know, they don't get the fifth year, Right. So as I told them at the time, it's probably better as a running back to go um, late, early in the second or in the second than it is late in the first because of that fifth year. Oh, absolutely. It's better for any player to be top around two than bottom around one. Because then you don't get saddled by that fifth-year option. You force them to either use the franchise tag, transition tag, or let you hit the open market. But especially for running backs, because that fifth-year option lets you squat on a guy and squeeze out another one of his best years before you have to pay him. 
Correct. And and then now, so you take note, in case, like, Vixen, who came out as a true junior, 20 years old when he got drafted, so three years puts him at 23. That's huge for a running back. In fact, he's going to be 23 when we start talking about another deal. Okay? As opposed to if a guy becomes a senior, comes out, gets drafted in the first round, all of a sudden he's 27 for the second deal. But even late in the first round, you take Josh Jacobs this year, he does a four-year, you know, basically a four-year deal for $12 million. $3 million a year. And yet the Raiders, by all counts, say he's coming in to start and be their bell cow. So at some point, you know, those numbers are skewing not just running backs, but a lot of salaries because you're getting these players to come in and do the same job that veterans are doing at 25% of the cost. It's the best, other than college football getting the players for free, this is the second best bargain. Well, but there's no way to change that because the one group that is not represented in any set of collective bargaining negotiations between the NFL and the NFL Players Association are the players who are not in the NFL yet, and those are the ones who get screwed by the rookie wage scale, right? The guys who are already in have their contracts. It's not Unless they're going to retroactively tear up the four-year deals that are signed by the guys who have entered the league over the last four years and give them new contracts, the rookie wage scale doesn't affect anyone who's currently in the pool of collective bargaining. It affects the guys who are still to come out of college. And you sell the rookie wage scale to the veterans by saying, hey, the less we pay them is the more we can pay you. That's right. And every one of those veterans that are on the negotiating committee were rookies at some point. However, since they are not represented, there's no representation for the players in college in the collective bargaining agreement, that they definitely get thrown to the wayside every time there's a negotiation, for sure. It's no different, you know, sort of to segue also into, you know, current politics and the immigration issues that are going on in our country. It's like my grandpa used to say, you know, our families hated immigrants ever since we came over. <laughs> well, and you know, I remember having that conversation with you back in 2011 when the rookie wage scale was really being debated hotly, and specifically the reductions at the very top, the significant and dramatic reductions in pay to the first 20 picks in order to prevent a guy who never earns it from absconding with all those millions that money stays now in the salary cap pool for other players. And yeah, hey, look, we can slam the door on those who aren't here yet because they have no vote, they have no say, we're in, they're not, screw them. And I think the veterans thought that this would actually help them. I don't see, and I don't think that teams are are funneling all that money that they've saved to older players. If anything, more and more teams have huge salary cap Balloons now that they're holding on to year after year instead Correct. of paying that money over to veterans. Right. You know, it's all everybody blames Jim Marcus Russell. But I say all this, all the rookie wage scale system is, is scouting insurance for the teams. Nobody forced the Raiders to take Jim Marcus Russell. They had him rated as the number one player on the board. Had they, you know, if you think about it, the next player was Calvin Johnson, the next player was Joe Thomas, Adrian Peterson went seventh that year. So the teams. The draft agent Peterson, Joe Thomas, Calvin Johnson, they loved the pick. They got tremendous value out of it, and I guarantee you that they, they had no problem paying. And so when you give the players, and we're just telling you the first round is a huge part, all right? Kyler Murray did a four-year deal for $35 million. 
8.7 million a year. Sounds like a lot of money, right? Until you realize he's coming in to start a quarterback this year, and quarterbacks are making thirty million dollars. Basically, he's playing for four years. What you know, um, probably you know, like Russell Wilson is going to make for one year. But how do you change that? I agree with you that it's a problem, and I think it's unfair. I've been ranting about the way the Texans are treating Jadavian Clowney, refusing to give him to a, a new contract refusing to let him become a free agent, squatting on him with the franchise tag, nickel and diming him over whether or not they're going to pay him at the defensive end rate or less than that. But what can be done to change it? I I think the reality is, even in this ongoing climate of a CBA discussion, it's a low priority for the NFLPA to get more money for the rookies who are entering the draft each year. I then remove the, the, the moratorium against renegotiations for three years, take out the $30,000 day fine, for withholding services. Give it's 40 now. Back. You know that, don't you? It, right, 40, right. $40,000 a it day. It started right. at 30 and, and went I'll, to 40. Right, so it's $40,000 a day, and you can't negotiate for three years, and once you get to whatever, August 6th, they can start taking back prorated signing loans. Remove all that stuff and give players the, the ability to withhold services if they're not being paid properly. And I remember asking Goodell face-to-face in 2010 what happens if you get a rookie wage scale that prevents Jamarcus Russell from taking all that money out of the system, but the guys who actually earn their money, they never get it. How do they get it? And he said, well, you know, the teams will take care of those guys. But, but they don't. They don't. Correct. And, and uh, now, sometimes they do, but in a lot of cases, they don't. And the Cowboys aren't taking care of Ezekiel Elliott, and the Cowboys or the, the Texans didn't take care of Jadavian Clowney, and you've got plenty of guys taken in round one who have to play through four or five years before they ever get their long-term contract. And I so what would you reduce it to? Would you would you eliminate it altogether? You can renegotiate whenever you want. Would it be one year? Would it be two years? What would you put in place of three? After your first year, if you perform. You're fine. Now, people say everybody's going to hold out. Really? Well, if you're not at that level where the team's going to be able to withstand the whole, you know, the holdout, they'll cut you and they'll replace you. But if you are irreplaceable, the agent has to make that the right call. You know, the players have to be irreplaceable. They have to make sure that they affect the fortune of the team. Then, the, first of all, teams will come to you and treat you fairly. Second of all, you know, I think that also if teams can come to players early, they might get some good bargains too. Because you're coming to a player two or three years before they, especially a second, third rounder who did not get a $10, $20 million signing bonus, you offer security. You offer guarantees. Like, hey, look, you redo the deal now, yes, you'll make more money, but maybe the average instead of $14 million a year is $10 million a year. Okay? And, and you really throw the onus onto the team to self-scout. But if they pick the right players and self-scout, the Eagles, Joe Banner used to do it all the time. He signed a lot of guys after two years, got him, gave him security, built harmony in the locker room. Yeah, until until they realized in three years they'd been screwed. That's a different story uh, altogether, though. Not all the players were screwed. Sean Andrews, Mike Patterson, come on. A lot of those guys were signed to those ultra-long-term deals. They got a pot of money up front, and they didn't realize the cap was going to keep going up, and and the market was going to keep going up, and they were going to be very unhappy with their contracts after a few years. Right, but I also did Trey Thomas, and his contract stood the test of time because we, you know, we envisioned where the market was going. That's why you pay agents to do their homework, right? When it, when it, good agents figure it out and they negotiate it properly, and they figure out the right discount or getting the money early and make sure that they can keep 
the, the player in a number that's going to treat him fairly, you, you do it. You know, it, it is a two-way sword. You know, no one's putting a gun in anybody's head, but that's why you do want to have quality representation. But I'm telling you right now, though, when you look at what a running back does, Ezekiel Elliott, Todd Gurley, Melvin Gordon, um, Saquon Barkley, Joe Mixon, and they're touching the ball. They're, they're getting 35 to 40 touches a game between carries and, and, and catches, three down backs. And yet they're getting paid roughly 55 to 60% of what receivers are getting, and those receivers are getting 8 to 12 touches a game. So instead of you're talking 40% of the touches to maybe 15%, and yet they're making less money. But why do you think that is? Well, I think that, first of all, when you look at it historically, um, Adrian Peterson had a really good deal. When he came out, he redid it again. And it started, his real good deal started because he was under the old system and had a good rookie contract coming in, number one. Number two, then you had the next wave of bell cow running backs that did subpar deals. Um, Shady McCoy. You know, he, he does a deal at 50%, and he is just, when he was at his pinnacle, there was one A and one B, Adrian Peterson with Sean McCoy, who was better. I mean, they were three down backs. They can carry the load. Most importantly, the, the type of running back that when you watch film, teams are putting eight men in the box. And when you put eight men in the box against uh, Adrian Peterson with Sean McCoy and Elliott and Mixon, and they're still getting four and a half yards to carry or five yards to carry, they're doing work, all right? Because they're going against defenses that are designed to stop them. Well, then when you have eight guys in the box, it limits what you can do on the backside, right? How many coverages can you do when you only really have three guys back? You either got cover zero, cover one, or cover three. And now that opens it up, in like Joe Mixon's case for Boyd and A.J. Green and Tyler Eifert underneath, that, that type of deal. So the receivers are going to now benefit from the fact that they're not seeing the type of coverages that you can run if you don't have a bell cow running back but i, think I agree with you on all that i understand right, all that but 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 here's the thing it, it can't, the answer can't be that running backs are devalued because all of the best running backs have done shitty deals that can't be the reason it can't because agents don't just represent running backs they represent quarterbacks receivers offensive line defensive players it can't just be that coincidentally all the running backs are doing bad deals i think the teams don't value the position this isn't about the agents failing to do good deals this is about the teams allocating certain amounts of money to the running back position and they just aren't willing to pay running backs so why aren't they willing to pay running backs well i believe it is part of the agent's responsibility but they're representing good deals. They're, they're, they're getting those deals done for other players. Are you saying well, no, that there's just this wormhole for the running backs that the agents don't know how to properly negotiate the deals? I think that we have to, the agents for the top running backs have to make sure that they fight hard to get good deals, to get the Gurley deals and to get the Le'Veon Bell deals and the Johnson deals. And you can't accept, like, you know, the, the Shady McCoy deals because that affects not just your player but the entire market. But bad deals are done at all positions. I See, I don't think it's about the quality of the deal. I think the, and you mentioned a key word earlier. You said 
that you know you're going to hold out and you need to know that you're irreplaceable before you hold out because if you're not irreplaceable you will be replaced i think the reality of the running back position is but for that handful of guys every year who are truly special and it is a moving target it changes every year guys go from being not special to special they go from special to not special they go from special to not special to special again but there is a small group of truly special guys and all the other guys are replaceable especially because every major college program has a guy who can run the ball at the NFL level. Every major college program has one of those guys. And the question is, can he hold on to the football? Will you block for him? Can you trust him in pass protection? But the supply outweighs the demand. I think it's that simple. Of the non-special running back. The special running back, different story. The non-special running back I think there's too many guys out there that you can draft under this rookie wage scale or sign as an undrafted free agent like an Arian Foster, and he comes in and he does a great job. Well, I think that that definitely hurts the market when you can't find a guy not in the first round, not even in the second round, Adrian Foster, C.J. Anderson, you know, undrafted guys, because they do seem to fall through the cracks. But when you do have that player, and, and like I say, Elliott, Gurley, Mixon, Gordon, Back in the day when it was, you know, Emmett Berry and Curtis Martin with Adrian Thomas and Adrian Peterson, you know, in the last decade. Teams, I think, you know, the teams that win are the ones that make sure they keep those players on board. And if they think they can replace them, well, at some point that is their call. But I guarantee you, you know, you look at the Chargers and they say, well, Philip Rivers doesn't need uh, – Melvin Gordon as much as other players because he can still put up the numbers. And I say to yourself, well, how many Super Bowls has Philip Rivers won? Well, well but, but here's the thing. But the, the analysis for the Chargers isn't that. The analysis is Melvin Gordon holds out. They put in Austin Eckler and they don't miss a beat. That's the problem for Gordon. Well, they don't, well, they, they, they don't miss a beat statistically running back-wise. But I do tell you they do miss a beat because defenses are playing them differently. You know, again, to go back to Barry Sanders. I but Melvin remember. Gordon's not in the category of special running back. If you tell me LaDainian Tomlinson from back in the day, that's different. But Melvin Gordon is not going to force eight, nine guys up to the line of scrimmage. He's just not. I think when Melvin Gordon is running on all cylinders, you have to play guys up. I think he's right. He's If, if it goes Elliott, Gurley, uh, Barkley, Mixon, you know, as the top four, I think he's right there in the, the, the top guy in the next quadrant. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, and what about Le'Veon Bell? Down, Do you have Le'Veon Bell in there? I think Le'Veon Bell would be in the top. If Le'Veon Bell comes back to seventeen, Le'Veon Bell, yes, he's that he's he's that kind of marquee player. Absolutely. Well, what has Melvin Gordon done statistically to make you think that he's up in that stratosphere? I mean, how many touchdowns you know does Melvin Gordon have? Right. I think he's got you know thirteen touchdowns, uh, averaging. Where is it here? Four point, you know, four yards per carry, and, and and yards per carry is a coefficient of what are they playing against you, all right? If they are playing cover two and they're only playing, you know, regular six or seven man box, and you're getting four yards per carry, that's one thing. If you are putting it up against defenses designed to stop you, then that really makes a difference. So it's not like in baseball, a guy throws a curveball, it's a curveball no matter where you throw it. Yards per carry is not just a coefficient of the number of carries and yards; it is a you know, what are you running against? 
know, he like averaged five one. He averaged five one last year in twelve games. That was the first time in his career he was at or above four. He had three nine, three nine, and three five the three years before that. Last year it moved to five one. Eight hundred and eighty five yards in twelve games. I mean, per game that's fairly impressive, but that that doesn't scream out to me that this guy is special running back talent. And again. Austin Eckler, they'll just shrug. I mean, look, last year, Le'Veon Bell sits out. James Conner's great. James Conner gets injured. Jalen Samuels is great. It gets back in my mind, Peter, to the, the, the supply just outweighs the demand. But you have to look in order to truly, and that's why analytics falls in football, because you have to look at what the defense was they were playing, playing against. With James Conner seeing eight men in a box, or were they playing them with regular 4-3-7, which affects the pass game. Now, Barry used to always tell me when – you know, they would say, we need to watch, we're playing Tampa this week. So we should watch the last three games of Tampa's defense to see what they did. And he'd say, why? Against everybody else, they play cover two. Against me, they're going to play cover one with eight guys in the box. So the fact that they did it for the last three weeks doesn't matter because they change what they do. And I believe special players, elite players, are ones that make you as an opponent change what you do every week. And if you can do that, force the team to change their bread and butter, then that those are the players that should be paid. Whether it's you know AJ Green because you have to double him, or um, Russell Wilson because now you got to keep all these spies in because he just moved moved the pocket so well. Whatever it is, if that player can change what you do every day, that's the marquee player. That's so. Who that's are the running guy. backs that do that? Melvin Gordon is not a running back that makes you change your defense. Barry Sanders is. Ezekiel Elliott is today, right? Gurley healthy is. Bell, right, but we don't know if he's going to be healthy. Bell 17 is. Right. right? Last year, when Mixon was hit his stride, he is. Um, Barkley, last year, when he hit his stride. Now, it's hard to say because with Barkley, you know, the Giants, you know, they weren't really hitting on all cylinders last year. So you wonder, you know, if, if, if they are with, you know, are people still going to put eight guys in the box? Because that was really their major threat, you know, last year. And he still did well. That's the thing. The guys who still thrive when they have changed the defense to account for you and you still get your yards. Barry Sanders still got his yards. They can put 11 guys at the line of scrimmage. He's still getting his yards. And Saquon Barkley still did his damage even though they tilted the defense to stop him. That's right. And and when last year, if you – and, of course, you know, if I haven't already proven, I have no life of my own. I watch these games and I look at all the stuff. Last year, at the beginning of the year, like with Mixon – they would stack the box, and so that forced the quarterback because the system says if they stack the box, you audible to a pass, and they would get out of the run game. But all of a sudden they realized, hey, we can still get five yards of carry even running into the teeth of their defense, and so they would not audible out. All right? You know, when the, when teams would want to stop Barry Sanders, they're like, all right, let's put nine guys in the box and we'll make Scott Mitchell beat us. God, you know, who would you rather have beat you, Mitchell or, or Barry Sanders? But when Detroit started running even into the teeth, and he's still getting five yards of carry, like you're talking about Barkley, that's value. And that's what needs to be compensated because they can change what other teams do. Take well, away the and that, that's, the that's what you have to negotiate. You have to be persuasive when you have your opportunity to talk to the teams about it. And, and it needs to be fewer than three years before a Saquon Barkley Ezekiel, Christian McCaffrey, Joe Mixon is able to go back to the team and say, basically, F you, pay me. Right. Because they're getting the best these guys have. I'm repeating myself now, but they're getting the best these guys have before they're forced 
to ever sit down and talk to them about a new contract. Right, and we and, and I left out McCaffrey, and I would put him in there because of his uniqueness also in the pass game. I mean, he's going to have 2,000 yards from scrimmage this year, barring injury. McCaffrey almost had 2,000 yards from scrimmage last year, and he did it quietly. Correct, and he might have more because you know because North Turner is going to throw him all the place, and so therefore he's a guy when he has 2,000 carries, he's going to have 35 to 37 percent of their touches. So why do you let a receiver, when he comes up, he should be in the 15, 16, 17 million dollar year category? Well, and he's got Absolutely. he's got a better argument for that because he does so much in the passing game. He had 219 carries and 107 catches last year. That's my that's my 300. Well, well, that's the number 300. But these guys are rare. That's the thing. These guys are rare. The rare guys. See, here's the problem. Two problems. The system isn't set up to let the rare guys get paid while they are stu- still doing rare things. And the system doesn't pay the guys who don't do rare things because there's a lot of guys out there that you can get cheaply who likewise will do the things that are a cut below what the truly special running backs do. I think I think that we've identified the problem. I just don't know how to solve it. Well, my granddad used to say also, price is an issue only in the absence of value. All right? So yes, you can get someone to do something cheaper. You know, NBC can get find somebody when when you go on vacation to, to talk and do whatever they do. Shoot, they they found someone to replace Peter Chink the last month. I'll tell you this right now: I didn't read any of the articles when Peter Chink wasn't writing them, and now that he's back Monday, it was the first thing I read Monday morning. All right, and I'm not watching your show with a substitute guest on it unless it's some you know some. So My show's not on. Watch Tour de France. That's what's on. But you could listen to my show if you wanted to. I do. Well, that goes to show you that I'm not watching that because I'm not going to watch the Tour de France. Is it France or France? It's France. It's not France. the if it's the Tour of France, right? But if it's the Tour Day, then we have to say France. Because you're going because you can speak so many languages, you're amphibious. Exactly. Um, right. So anyway, look, I. I I uh, I don't I don't I just I you know I had an idea a few minutes ago. There, there almost needs to be a revolutionary change to how these guys are paid. It, it almost has to be almost like an eat what you kill type of a thing, where the, where where there's some committee out there that pays these guys, you know, globally. You determine what they were worth to their team, and you pay them after the fact. Or you have a, a series of, of markers based upon production that gets you paid. And I know there's well, that the system, that paper performance performance system. I'm talking about something that really would allow a guy early in his career who's gaining 2,000 yards, who's 40% of the offense, and getting 140th at best of the overall salary. You know, it's 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 not it's not fair to these guys. But I just don't know how we solve it. I think you solve it by allowing these guys to go back after the first year and negotiate and withhold their services without draconian penalties, and make teams have to pay fair value for a fair day's work and understand that sometimes what you pay for is. Let's say this. Let's say that running back gets fourteen million a year, but even though receivers are getting eighteen, all right? And you know, Todd Gurley, fourteen million a year. But he only plays three of the four years of the contract. Right? And you're like, Oh my God, we didn't get the value in the fourth year and we gave him, you know, forty two million dollars. No, you get in that case, the value came in that fourth year because 
you paid him less than the 18. So if you think about it, that's $4 million a year. So he got it. It's just that you amortized it over four years. But the risk and the brutality of what these guys, the position they play, should not be held against them. They should be rewarded. So they go out there and do it because their shelf life is going to be less. You know, Drew Brees is playing into his 40s. Tom Brady's playing into his 40s. Why? The risk of injury is not the same. And then the diminished skill that comes from age and injury to a quarterback is not as draconian to their abilities because speed is not the coefficient that makes them great. I've got the beginnings of an idea that I'm trying to think through as we're talking. A way to bring fairness back to the, the, the process of drafting players and figuring out who is and isn't worth the big windfall, right? Because that's why they put the rookie wage scale in place, ostensibly, to prevent Jamarcus Russell from getting $70 million and never earning a penny of it. So after one year, you're suggesting that the window opens to renegotiate. After one year, we know whether or not the guy can do it. Is that fair to say? Most teams, all teams are going to know. Is this guy able to compete at the NFL level? One full year of practices and games should be enough, correct? Correct. Okay. There needs to be a mechanism after that year where it's almost like catching a fish. You catch the fish. You get the fish, and you can either keep it or throw it back. And once you have the fish in the boat, you get a chance to look at the fish, and if you decide to keep it, it's going to cost you a bunch of money, or you can throw it back. It's almost like after one year, you have to decide whether or not you're going to keep the fish. And there's a new there's a new level of compensation that kicks in. Now, it's the easiest, I think, to articulate this at the top of the round, top of round one, right? Your top 20 guys. After you, you, they get a basic amount for the first year, and then after one year, if you keep them, they get something in line with what they would have gotten under the old rookie wage scale, the old compensation system pre-2011. And if you don't want to keep them, then you just throw them back in. And I don't know whether they have a separate draft of second-year players or they become free agents or what, but it's almost like something like that, something revolutionary, something outside the box, and there's a fine line between outside the box and just freaking crazy, but it's almost something like that where after one year, you have to either marry or divorce the guy that you brought in. If you're going to marry him, it's going to cost you. Well, right, but at the same time, you're forgetting something that the draft in and of itself is a, you know, a pure per se violation of the antitrust laws. Well, it's not it's because a, there's a multi-employer bargaining unit and the NFLPA has agreed to have a draft. So it's not a violation of the antitrust laws because it's 32 different businesses who are all fishing out of the same pond. Right, but if, if you were to sit there and say... If, Kyle, if, if there was no draft and Kyler Murray can go to the highest bidder, he's making a lot more $32 million on four. Correct. But, you know, the seventh rounders are probably getting what they're getting now anyways. So yeah, it's rookie. It's, it's, it's minimum salaries for four years plus, you know, a $50,000 signing bonus if you're lucky. Correct. And yet, so the market is skewed because of the anti-capitalistic um, and restraint of trade. And so if you sit there and say, you know, one year, well, because they didn't get their upside of pure capitalistic market coming out, you can't do that. Because part of the quid pro quo for giving them the restraint of trade is that we do get guaranteed money in the form of a signing bonus based upon the round you get drafted. 
Well, right, but, but, but I'm saying throw out the current system altogether. When you draft guys through seven rounds, you get dibs on those guys for a year. And then after one year, something is going to happen. And I don't know what that something is by way of what they would get paid if you keep them. But you get that one year with the players. And then you either have to pay those guys like stars if they are stars, or you cut them loose. And I think that's... I Look, I... I'm fascinated by, and, and you know, will the NFL ever agree to it? No. Will the NFLPA ever make the concession necessary to make it happen? No. But if we want to have fair treatment, let's say it's a seventh rounder who ends up leading the league in rushing in his rookie year. He's he's stuck for at least two more seasons under a rookie minimum and second year minimum and third year minimum salary, and there's nothing he can do about it. What I'm saying is because the draft historically is such a crapshoot, why do we lock these guys into the results of a crapshoot for at least three years? Why don't we acknowledge it's a crapshoot? And then after that first year, when you have the information as to whether or not the guy's going to thrive at the NFL level, something else happens. Something you've, if he's a star, you have to pay him as a star, you know, and, and if he's a mid-level guy, you pay him as a mid-level guy. And if, if you don't want him, you just, you know, maybe there's, maybe there's multiple levels of contracts you offer the guy after one year and he either says yes or he says no, I'll go back into the draft pool, I'll go into a second-year player draft pool, I'll become a free agent, whatever it may be. But I feel like that's a fair way to deal with running backs and every other player who gets tied to that slot based upon what he did at the college level and what the results of the Underwear Olympics were instead of what we saw from him as an NFL player. Maybe you do two years. Maybe you get two years, and then after two years, that's when you got three different levels of contract that the guy gets. You you offer a level to him, and he either accepts it or he says, I'm out of here. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to come up with the guts of an idea. I, I mean, the basic premise is something changes to compensate these guys based upon what they do in the NFL after one year or two years. I just don't know what that that formula would be. I, I got to think that through some more. But I feel like it's going to require something dramatic like that because I don't think it's enough to just say you can renegotiate your contract after one year. Well, you hold out. Well, they call your bluff. You know, I, I think that you should get, if you come in as a, as a rookie, the 20th overall pick, and you end up being a great player, a pro bowler your first year, you should get the money that you didn't get right out of the gates. There should be a mechanism to give you that money. You know, you want to change a formula, that's obviously a collectively bargained for concept. So you need both management and the union, you know, to buy into it. Anytime there's a tremendous change, and, you know, you're going to have a lot of issues. And also now, the more rules, the, the more complex it'll get. So are we talking about getting rid of the whole system, going to two rounds in the draft. Or, as I suggested earlier, let's just let people renegotiate after one year. Now, of course, all the fans hate the concept of holdouts. But at the end of the day, that's the only leverage a player has is to withhold, or an employee has, is to withhold their services. And if gives management two options, either pay the player at an agreed-upon rate or, you know, replace the player. And so, you know, if you make the right call and you got the right player... You'll get paid. If you don't, then they will replace you. Why do you think it is that fans get so upset with the players when they hold out? Why, why is it when the teams play hardball with the players, the fans don't say anything, but when a player plays hardball with the team, they become public enemy number one? 
you know, I think that the great, the greatest part, you know, that's more of a uh, maybe a sociological question on the science of sports and fans and adulation. But at the end of the day, fans want to see their stars. And as much as they're infatuated with the salary numbers and you know the hundred million dollar NBA contracts, at the end of the day, they want to go root for their their Lakers or their Knicks or their Broncos, and they want the best players out there. And you know, you look at a player who's you know twenty to thirty years old, and they're making hundreds of millions of dollars. I think that there's a little envy there, and and nobody wants to hear about it. And I don't think you know I don't think the fans love the fact that owners are you know billionaires. You know, I, 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 always I don't think the fans care that the owners are billionaires. In the fans' eyes, there's no difference between millionaires and billionaires, and we hate them all. They don't realize the magnitude, the difference between what the players make and what the owners have. And the one thing that never gets discussed in this regard, and, and, and you know, it was brought up some in the last CBA negotiations, and I think it needs to be factored into the way they cut up the pig when they decide how the revenue is going to be split. The owners have the equity. The owners are going to keep generating these millions and billions year after year after year after year after year. The players have a very limited window when they can earn and and that just that just never gets discussed the way that it should. Absolutely agreed. And and you know what? Sometimes and I'm not trying to put down any of the owners of the league. Some are friends of mine. Some are, are I, I don't know. But when the Super Bowl and they give out the trophy and they're like you know congratulations to the owner, I'm saying to myself, what did they do? You know the general manager and the scouts and the coaches and the players are the ones that toiled the whole year. You know the owners. A lot of them have multiple businesses. And yet they get congratulations for really the sweat equity of 53 players and 18 coaches and 10 people in the front office and a countless other people. So, you know, I do think that they get a, a lot of credit that they don't deserve. And, and some people, someone once coined to me that ownership in the NFL is Hollywood for ugly people. Well, I mean, look, and, and I've also been told the only thing better than being rich and famous is being rich, as plenty of owners find out when they become notorious. I mean, Stephen Ross... Wouldn't he love to go back to the days when he was just a billionaire that nobody knew who he was instead of a guy who's regarded as not a very good owner of an NFL team? No, that's why he bought the team. You know, that's why, you know, everybody talks about, you know, how much money, the, you know, the, the Packers made last week, $280 million from TV money. But when you look at the ROI on a football team, it's not the same as, you know, Jimmy Haslam makes a lot more money from the Flying J truck stops owning thousands of those and he actually gets on, on a football team but the value of a three it's, you know it's really not a three billion dollar value but that comes from the ancillary value of the, 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 the prestige and the you know the, the fame and how do you put a price on that nobody well would, nobody would knew Daniel Snyder until he bought the Redskins it's still right but but the point is would you rather if you're Daniel Snyder I think this is a, 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 a prime example Washington fan Grew up rooting for the team, bought the team 20 years ago, meddled like crazy for the first 10 years plus. I think he's realized, you know what, this this does me no favor uh, by, by being so involved. I'm going to back off and let others run it. But but do you think if you applied sodium pentothal and or a lie detector test to him that he would say, I wish I'd never bought the team? I'd rather no. have done something else with my hundreds of millions of dollars and, and had a better ROI and not have a bunch of people that I don't know hate me. No, I think that it's. I think the value to his brand and to his ultimate net worth has gone up because uh, he owns the team. Jerry Jones, you know, I mean, his net worth has gone up significantly, not just from his football investments, 
but all investments, absolutely. You know, I, I would tell you sodium pentothal or not, they're saying, I'm glad I did. Well, I think Jerry Jones, yeah. look, first of all, I mean, he, he, he seems to revel in just people knowing who he is and talking about him, and he doesn't care if people hate him, but he's had... The, the upside as well. He's the owner of America's team. But but for some of these guys, I just think at some level you have to say, why the hell did I do this? And can I just go back to being a really rich guy that nobody knows who I am? Then, I, I don't know. That, that's a sociological question. And that's an issue that, look, we we, we have, we, I, I, I've got, I've got a moderate amount of notoriety without the billion dollars to go along with it. All right, let's, let's uh, touch on a couple of other things before I let you go. And you've been kind enough to give me almost an hour here. The word has come out that the CBA meeting that was scheduled for this week, they were supposed to do three days. They're already done after one day, apparently. Joint statement says it was productive and encouraging and all of that. The league wants to get something done by the start of the regular season. I don't think that's going to happen. Do you think there's any way they can get something done before week one, Packers-Bears Thursday night on NBC? No. No. You know, it's hard enough to do a contract for a player. When you're talking about a collective bargaining agreement that's going to last between five and ten years, there are just so many different moving pieces from – not just the monetary, and, and, and the, we're talking about the rookie wage scale, but you're talking about severance pay and injury protection and little municipal things like health care for rookies and health care for five years. There are just so many moving parts, drug policy, steroid policy, that it, it's a very del- delicate, it's a, it, it's a very, there's a lot of small details to this, and it takes a lot of time. And the problem is, that with the way that structure with the negotiating committee of being 10 players, they're all starting training camp next week. So they're not going to have the time to really dive into all these little small points during, during training camp. It's just then why does the NFL, why does the NFL want, why, why and uh, the commissioner came out and said last week in an interview with CNBC that yes, we want to get this done. That's our intent. Why is the NFL putting the pressure on the NFLPA to get this done before the start of the season? If it's not practical. Well, I think that it, labor peace is one of the things that commissioners' legacies um, are judged on. You know, who had the strike, who lost the season, and regardless of football, football, baseball, basketball, hockey. And I think that Roger wants to maintain his you know perfect record of having not missed any games. Number one, number two, I think that the television contracts are coming up, and the one thing that television networks want since this is really one of their major money makers, NFL football, is to have labor peace and labor labor um, security, knowing that there's not going to be any uncertainty. And I think that if they know that there's un- be no uncertainty in the labor front for five, six, seven years, the networks will step up and make a much bigger offer on the contract. And I understand that conceptually. Um I just don't know why they think it's going to work. Like, I, they're putting the NFLPA in an untenable situation because there's no way the NFLPA can get this done. I mean, think about it. Well, when, when would you have a vote on the new CBA? Because all these rosters have 90 players until Labor Day weekend. Do you thread right. the needle between Saturday of Labor Day weekend and Thursday night when the season starts? Do you get 32 different votes as players are getting ready for the first game of the season? I, it just, I don't know why the NFL would even think that this is a realistic thing. And, and surely they're smart enough to know 
that this is going to be impractical. So why are they pushing for it? I, I just I always think that somebody's up to something because more often than not somebody is up to something. And I just I, I wonder what they're up to trying to put the NFLPA in in a spot where there's no way this can happen. Well, two things. One, did you call me Shirley? Uh, yeah, that's a very timely reference. What else you got? <laughs> Number two is I think that the fact that they're starting the discussions is a good thing. And as long as they're having productive discussions, they're whittling down issues, they're, you know, it's going to take a long time. So the mere fact that we started two months ago in Minnesota and we're going today in Chicago, these are all productive. The more that they discuss, the more that we'll be able to find where we have common ground, where we don't have common ground, where we're going to argue and what we have to trade off will all bode well to having a CBA way before we get to DEFCON 5 and, and, and there's a way. I think it's DEFCON 1. DEFCON 1. DEFCON 1, right. We're at DEFCON 5 now, and let's stay there. Well, but I, and I, look, I, I just don't, I understand, everything you're saying makes sense, but why in the world would the NFL want to put the NFLPA in this posture where the NFL is saying, we want to get a deal done, and they know the NFLPA, as a practical matter, can't get a deal done. Is is this like the first skirmish in the broader PR war, where if this takes longer than expected, the NFL say, hey, we were ready to do this before the 2019 regular season even started, and they weren't able to 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 you know to meet us halfway. I, I just I don't I don't get it because I agree with you. I don't think a deal gets done by the start of the regular season, and if that's the case, I don't know why the commissioner is out there saying they want a deal done by the start of the regular season. Well, I think that you hit the nail on the head. By doing that, you're putting pressure on the union to, you know, come through with the deal. Because the fans, just like we talked earlier, they just want football. They don't, they don't care about this thing. The only people that really care about whether there's a deal on the points or, or, or the Mike Florios and, and any other NFL insiders, because it gives you something to report on outside of football. I think fans but, care about it. Though. I think I think that 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 ardent, zealous fans care about some of these details because the way that players are paid uh, the, the the way that the salary cap is constructed the way that the rules are put in place that that affects how teams either compete or don't compete and uh you know to the extent that the system changes whether it's more practice time less practice time more money available less money available more years uh, until you can get to free agency, fewer years to free agency, whatever it may be. I think that the smart fan looks at all that and understands that it influences the broader picture of how competitive the various teams are going to be. Well, I don't disagree with you on that. And I think that the fans that vote, and they vote with their dollars, attending games, watching games for ratings, you know, if they truly judge the owners by how much of an effort they're making to put the best possible product on the field, then that, that is an incentive for owners to spend money on players. All right. You know, part of the problem that you have in, in football is there's, you know, almost every game sold out. So if a team sits there and says this year, you know, we just don't have the talent. So why should I go out and spend $30 million on a bunch of free agents this year to go eight and eight? Okay. You know, so I don't spend it. We go six and 10. I still get a good attendance. And I'll save the money, put it in my own pocket or whatever. But when there's an incentive to go out there, and that incentive comes from the fans by saying, hey, you're not giving us a chance to win, so why should we support you if you're spending 75% of what 
the Cowboys are spending, or you're spending 75% of what the Seahawks are spending, because their owners truly are defining winning by wins and losses. You're defining winning by, okay, we give you a chance, but I'm also putting an extra $30 million in my pocket. And, you know, that's the problem in baseball. You know, you look at the, the, the Marlins, they jettisoned all that money. They knew they were going to suck, so how bad did they suck? It didn't matter because the owner saved $100 million in payroll. And so instead of winning 60 games, they won 50 games. But the fans kept going. And as long as the fans keep going, there's no incentive for the, the owners to have to really pony up to put the best product on the field. That's why I think the most important thing that can be done in this round of CBA talks is to move the spending minimum from 89% of the salary cap on a four-year rolling average and 95% league-wide. They need to move that to 95% per team and 100% league-wide because every team, if it chooses to do so, can keep 11 cents of every cap dollar in its pocket, which means Jim Irsay can buy all the antique guitars he wants. Owners can buy super yachts. They can take that 11%. And this year, at a salary cap of $188 million, 11% is $20 million. Raw, unadulterated profit that you can just suck away from the payroll and jam into your pocket. And you can do that every year because 89% is the current floor. They need to move that up much, much higher and force teams. The whole idea of a salary cap is we put it there to protect teams against themselves because they otherwise would spend much more than that. It shouldn't be something where you have to force them to that level. They should want to be at that level. They should all be at that level to try to have the best possible teams they can have. Right, and a little-known fact, and it was even more egregious in 2010, the uncapped year, was when not only was there an uncapped year, but mandatory spending on benefits was removed. So not only did teams not have to spend money, uh, and I think it was the, the, the Panthers and the Chiefs and the Jaguars, but they also saved about $25 million in benefits. They didn't have to pay players, from severance pay contributions to 401k contributions. And it was every incentive in the world to have an uncapped year, not just because they didn't have to have a uh, minimum spend, but they also saved that kind of money on the benefits. You know, for years, the threat of an uncapped year got these deals done. And eventually, when the NFL realized it was up against an uncapped year, they dug into it and they concluded, you know what, this may not be a bad thing for us, as long as we can ensure that none of the teams will go out and spend like crazy. And the ones that did got whacked after the fact, the Cowboys in Washington, because God forbid they treated the rules of the uncapped year as uncapped. And we're headed for that in... 2020 right the last year of this deal i assume we're back to the same uncapped year and all of that stuff if we get through march without a new cba and there are rules that they've put in place you know you saw it in the wedge contract you know 25 percent rules and all that other stuff that's preventing teams from taking advantage of that and you know it'd be interesting to see what the union does to sit there and say well you know those are rules are anti-competitive or or in violation of the intent of the CBA because we're good. that's going to come down the pike here in the year. Maybe that's one of the reasons they want to get the deal done this year. Believe it. Well, either way, look, I could see maybe a deal in principle before week one that then they would do all the voting after the fact or maybe even a deal gets done before the Super Bowl and Roger Goodell can hold it up over his head like Simba. He can hold he can hold the the, the CBA in one hand, he can hold the TV deals in the other hand. I could see them trying to land the plane simultaneously on both deals, and then Goodell walks off into the sunset. But I, just, I think it's going to take a lot of work, especially, and i, I got to let you go, but 
I think the NFL is intent on getting to 18 games. And I think at some point they're going to make the players an offer that they can't and won't refuse. And I think the players have done a very good job of setting this up where no one thinks they want more than 16 games. Everybody believes they're serious about this, and it's put the NFL in a position where they have to make the players an offer they can't refuse. I tend to think at some point they will. Do you agree? Well, I think that with regards to the 18 games, in my, you know, in my world, there are very few absolutes, right? But the two things that we have to be focused on on the player side are, number one, health and safety of the players, and two, gen- generating more revenue for players. And, you know, we have to start, before you blankly say no 18 games, no 20 games, whatever, let's do some studies. You know, what are we giving up? If, you know, my proposal has been we go to a 17-game season with each team playing a neutral game, neutral site game, get rid of two exhibition games, all right? So the question then is, if you're having the veterans play an extra 60 plays, because it's roughly how many plays in a game there is for offense and defense, are we then taking away enough plays because we're getting rid of those two exhibition games? How are teams going to treat having like two games? You know, how many plays are veterans going to play? And then you add also a second bye at the, in the, into the schedule. And, and usually hope the second bye would come in November, December. So now you're giving the, the body time to rest, and you do these studies to sit there and say, okay, what if we do this? What if we do this? Making sure that you know after a Thursday night, you know, game that team, you know teams are getting buys or you know that type of stuff to protect the body and you do all these studies to find out how we can minimize any increase in risk to long-term problems for players and then you should sit there and say okay we've done these studies we need to do this this and this to protect the players this idea of a rotating number of games and teams can only players can only play 16 and 18 now that i don't think that works and you start looking into those things, and if that works, because that'll add an extra two games to the uh, regular season. So when you have the 17 week and the second bye, TV gets what they want, and as long as it's safe for the players, let's do it. Now, I'm not saying it's safe for the players. I'm saying let's do a study to figure out if it is. But people that are actually smarter than us that can figure a way to quantify that. Well, and I look, I. I... I agree with all of that, and I'd like to think the NFL has been doing the studies, and and I think the game has been made safer over the last 10 years. It's definitely safer when you watch games from the 80s and the, the brutality level that we saw in games back then. I just think that as long as the players sit back with their arms crossed and wait for the NFL to put an offer on the table that they can't refuse, that's good for the NFLPA because eventually they will. Eventually the NFL is going to put something out there that they just can't say no to, and I just think that it's a matter of time. And I like 17 regular season games. That's the Mark Murphy proposal. I like 9-8 and eight or 8-9 eight and nine as a final record, not 8-8. Eight and eight. I like 16 neutral site games, so everybody has eight home games, everybody has eight road games. And maybe what we'll see is 17 as the first step, and then after a cycle or two of the CBA – 18 games if enough owners still want it once they see that 17 works they move it to 18 i could see that happen i could see 17 for eight to ten years and then 18 after that well again let's do some studies as to the health and welfare of the players to make sure that there's ways to make sure that we're not making the game riskier and and, and affecting long-term health for the players and I would even go for even further that you know the, one of the downsides of getting rid of two exhibition games is the young players are not going to get any film. And what I would say is 
schedule some, you know, they already teams are already practicing against other teams, you know, the Bears and the uh, Browns or whatever. And as opposed to now where you just let those uh, teams scrimmage, you film those scrimmages of the young players and make that film available for all 32 teams because, you know, you have to get film out for the young players. And so you do certain things like that uh, in a scrimmage sense and film it and get those film out so those players, you know, teams can see what those players are doing. Well, look, it's not anything that's going to be solved anytime soon, but I think the NFL is going to keep pushing for this. And again, the NFLPA, I believe, has done a remarkable job of selling the idea that they don't want it, because I think at some level they will accept it, and the NFL believes they don't want it, and that will only result in a better offer being made. Peter, i got to let you go. It's been more than an hour. I appreciate your time. Great discussion about running back compensation. I don't think we've solved anything, but I think we've at least flagged some of the issues and some of the challenges, and we'll see if the NFL and the NFLPA will do anything about it. What uh, you know? What, what one thing that I wanted to talk to you about that we didn't get to? Uh, do, do you got like five more minutes? Yeah, let's go. All right. The notion that the players, the running backs, may actually come together to try to collectively use their bargaining power the running backs come together through their agents whether it's you know i i don't know joint holdouts mass holdouts mass walkouts or running backs i mean this idea that even though teams can't collude the players and the agents and the union can all get together and have uh, you know some strategy for forcing the teams to better value running backs that there's something like that in the works well i think that not only should they do that but they also need to collectively educate people like you know I talked about today as to the value of the running backs and I think that that needs to happen too that you have to take it upon yourself when you have the great player to you know educate the teams the fans the media as to the importance of the player and, and, and the agents have to, to do that they have to sit there and not just say my guy should be paid more but explain why and I think that's part of the process of banding together no difference in what the union has to do band together to explain why they should the players should get paid, you know, more than what they're getting now, and and why they should have lifetime health insurance. And you know, fans will sit there and say, why should the player be able to, to retire for life and get a pension after working four years when I've got to work forty years at you know IBM? You know, it's all part of the educational process that needs to go go into the um, into the system. But do you think there's a practical way for the players to band together across team lines, agents to band together across agency lines, and come up with some sort of a strategy for collectively pressuring teams to better take care of running backs? Do you think that's feasible? Yes, absolutely. That's what you know. Like I, we, I tried to do at the combine this year by bringing all the agents together to discuss the issues that are paramount to the to the business. And part of that is, as opposed to us fighting each other and bashing each other and recruiting. And, um, that type of stuff that at some point we have a commonality of interest that agents do need to get together as a profession and, and work together on certain issues. All right, Peter, great stuff. And, uh, we appreciate the time. We'll do this again, uh, at some point down the road, if you'll agree to do it, you may not after this experience, who knows, especially once you well, start to get feedback for all the things that you've said, all the inflammatory controversial things you've said over the last hour. Well, I don't even know if I, I think that with how, how how boring and dull I've been, I think that I might have ended the podcast. It might not even. Be we'll, we'll find out. We may oh, never do another episode after this. May there may be nothing for you to come back to at some point down the road. We'll find out. All right, Peter. Thanks, buddy. All right, later. Bye.
All right, that's it for the PFTPM podcast. We'll do another one later this week, Thursday or Friday. Check us out around the clock at profootballtalk.com. Hope you enjoyed this one. A little bit different than usual, but some inside baseball, or as the case may be, inside football, nuts and bolts of how running backs get paid, how they should get paid, how they could get paid, and what in the world is going to happen with the CBA. We'll have plenty more NFL talk for you later in the week. And again, as mentioned, and as always, profootballtalk.com around the clock. Everybody have a great day. You can find the PFTPM podcast on Art19, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you like what you hear, and you will, subscribe for automatic downloads. Leave a rating and review. That'll help new listeners find our show and push us up the charts. Search PFTPM for your evening update from Pro Football Talk. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. Cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution.